Okay, so last week we were we did the story of Lazarus, and that was such a beautiful story. Um, in the story, we see a perfect blending of Jesus in as as a human with his hey with his tears and his anger and his tender love, and then we also see that blended with his godly characteristics, his unbelievable power, his agape love, and his true submission to the Father. And we learn that love permits pain. And that's a thing that every parent needs to know because sometimes our best work is done when we're, when we're in pain. God's love sometimes leaves our prayers unanswered and that love always comes at length. Um, in implying, applying our fifth I am, which is I am the resurrection and the life, we should not fear death because death is really not the end. So that was last week, and this week, we're going to not fear death again. But the reason we're going to not fear it this day is because we have a home in heaven. And that's really what we're going to be talking about. Um, Let me back up and catch you up, because there's two whole chapters that we're not talking about today. Um, After we left in chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus occurred in Bethany about three months before the Passion Week. And this week we're starting the Passion Week. Remember, John is writing, and he's writing a very long time about the Passion Week of Jesus, uh, way more in-depth than any of the other disciples. And he's doing this because he felt like maybe they didn't give it enough, and he knew he was there, so he wanted to tell them really what was happening, and not just the narrative of it, why it was all happening. So um, we know at the end of chapter 11 that Jesus ended his public ministry at that point. And um, Jesus then withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim. If you look on your map, just look north of Jerusalem about 15 miles and you'll see Ephraim. And then he stayed with his disciples there until six days before the Passover when he returns to Bethany. So then in John 12, 1 through 8, he is anointed by Mary. Now, I have to mention this because we're girls. And Jesus has been hanging around all these disciples and been telling them, I'm going to die, in three days I'm going to rise from the dead. I mean, he's been telling them again and again. I mean, the scriptures is so faithful to record all this time. The disciples totally didn't get it. But Mary got it. Mary Mary of Bethany, Mary. There's lots of Marys. That's the Mary. So that's the Mary and Martha Mary. And, uh, and so she opens her alabaster, alabaster um, flask of this very expensive ointment that's worth a whole year's wages. Miss Debbie, we are very sorry to interrupt. Oh, that's okay. Um, but we don't want to miss Miss Louise. Oh, okay. Stephen has something that he would like to give to you. Oh, my goodness. Yes, go ahead. Oh, my goodness. Miss Louise is so awesome. Oh, she is awesome. I just embarrassed the crap out of him. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We didn't want to miss you, so... He's been totally excited to give that to you since he made it. Yay! All right, ladies, thank you. Thank you. What a lovely instance. Oh, you have got to hang that up. That's so sweet. I did pick him up this week. I know. I saw. I I I I saw that. Uh. 
So, okay, so anyway, um, so Mary goes ahead and um, anoints him. Mary's the one we always see kneeling at Jesus' feet. We should all be like Mary. Um, and so she wipes this ointment on his feet with her hair, and it's such a tender moment. And, of course, we get Judas saying, oh, why are you using this money? Because he was stealing money, evidently. And uh, and Jesus kind of says, and I like Mark's rendition the best. Mark 14, 6 through 9 says, But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will have the poor with you always, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not have me always. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand before burial and truly I say to you wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world what she has done will be told in memory of her so I'm just letting you know that this girl power here she totally got it um so the very next day after that they come in six the very next day is the triumphal entry and many of the people that had witnessed the eyewitnesses remember because this Bethany was just two miles away from Jerusalem and they had all these people coming to help Mary and Martha grieve over the their of Lazarus death and all these people now are eyewitnesses to the raising of Lazarus so the triumphal entry happens Jesus on a on a donkey comes in the palm branches and the disciples are in seventh heaven they are like this is it this is totally it he is going to come he's going to grab the throne we are going to kick off the Roman. This is what's going to happen. Mm. <laughs> um, then Jesus, at the end of John 12, has to burst their bubble. And he says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's the, They think that's the good news. <laughs> it's not. Um, let me just say that in Jesus' timetable, it was all about the Father's time. I've mentioned this before, but I have to tell you that there was no hour other than before, and then it, now it's time. Um, and he was never worried about, he was never rushing. He was just following God's timetable. But finally, he says, it's time. So, and this is, <clears throat> and it is. <laughs> so he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies it remains alone but if it dies it bears much fruit now at this the disciples are like this is not kind of what i had in mind whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life if anyone serves me he must follow me and where i am there my servants will be also if everyone serves me the father will honor him but now my soul is troubled he says and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come into this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd stood there and heard it. And they said, oh, it had thundered. And others said, oh, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world now will the ruler of this world be cast out and i when i'm lifted up from earth will draw all people to myself and then jump to 35 and so jesus said to them the light is among you for a little while longer walk 
while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So he's, this is that was six days. Now it's the day before. This is the day of his um, betrayal. Chapter 13 <coughs> starts with that night. And this is called, this will be called the Upper Room Discourse. And it starts in 1331 and it goes all the way to the end of chapter 17, which he ends with the high priestly prayer. So this is the longest of the discourses. Remember, there's seven discourses. Um, so he. So what happens in the beginning of 13 is um, he washes the disciples' feet. And if I had another week, I would do this, a picture on this. Because you just cannot understand what that was for Jesus who had made the entire earth. Remember John said that there's one coming that... I, I can't even untie his sandals. Be, and we learned that that disciples weren't allowed to untie sandals because that was even too low, even for the lowliest of disciples, that only slaves did that. And so what did Jesus do? He not only untied their sandals, he washed their feet. And then they look at him, and they're all arguing about who's going to be great. And you can just see in his brain saying, these are going to be the guys? Are you sure about this? <laughs> and he says to them, well, I'm doing this as an example so that you can do this as well. And so he left this legacy, which is amazing. Um, and so that folds into the Lord's Supper. And then we have the drama of Judas and his treason. And the last verse in, remember we were talking about the light and the darkness coming into this world? The last verse is verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, this is Judas, he immediately went out and it was night. So then Jesus, he's gone. So Jesus starts his upper room discourse. There's three themes in the upper room discourse. The first one, uh, and, and they're interspersed through this whole very, these are long chapters, Okay glorification he's going to mention that first thing his glorification god's glorification um he's the second recurring theme is his departure and this is going to totally blow his disciples out of the water they had not seen this one coming and then the third theme is love love is used 12 times in chapters 1 through 12 but it's used 44 times from here on to the end of the book. So this is huge because, and, and you'll see why. Um, so John, I'm just going to touch on this. I know I'm, I said that we were going to go through like chapter 14, like four, verse 14, and we're totally not going to, we're going to stop on the I am, but I have to back up a little bit. So John 13, 31, let me just read a little bit of it. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, and you will seek me. And just as I have said to the Jews, so also I say to you, that where I am going, you cannot come. 
A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this all people are going to know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. <coughs> Can you get under there? Um, there's a, a cup, and just fill it with water from that faucet. <coughs> oh, yeah, there's some cups in there. Um, <coughs> I think there, she can get me some right there. I think water might work, and we'll see. <coughs> My throat just gets dry from time to time. Okay, so Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. But you will follow me afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So I want you to hear the first of the themes that is glory and he says glory glory five times in these two verses with good reason because the world looked on the cross and could only see humiliation and disgrace and being accursed jesus looked at the cross and knowing what would be accomplished could say truthfully glory glory um trap says that Jesus calls his death glory, he esteems his crown of thorns more precious than Solomon's crown. He looks upon his welts as spangles, his blows on the faiths as ingots, his wounds as gems, his spittings as sweet ointment, and his cross as his throne. Um, Jesus is trying not, Jesus is thinking spiritually. He is, he, in this process of all of this, he has this end goal in mind. And he said, this is my, this is, he said this in chapter four. This is, this is what my food is to do God's will and to finish the work. And, and he's about to, the very next day, he will say that same Greek word to Telestai. It's finished. Mm-hmm. He's going to finish. This is what he's thinking about. Um, and so he looks at his little guys, his little band of guys, and he says, little children. And, he, and he's taking the, the head, the role of the head of the family here. And he's trying to comfort them because he's telling them, and they're hearing him for the first time, that he's leaving them. And they could understand a lot of things, but they could not understand that. He says, I'll be with you a little while longer, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Uh, John MacArthur writes, this would have been like an earthquake to the disciples. They had literally left everything to follow Jesus and expected to be high-ranking officials in his government when he took political control of Israel as the Messiah. This is what they had signed up for. After three years, they heard him say that he was going to leave. In verses 34 and 35, he says, a new commandment I give to you. And this new in Greek is like a fresh commandment. Not an old worn out commandment. Um, I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love 
for one another. So the Jewish people, in fact, they here already said, you know, what is the greatest commandment? Love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this is not a new thing. What's a new thing is that Jesus said that you need to love each other the way I loved. Mm-hmm. So talk about up in the ante. That's what Jesus just did. So Barclay writes, how did Jesus love? Uh, selflessly? Sacrificially? There's no limit to his, what his love would do or give or where it would go. He loved understandingly. Jesus knew his disciples through and through. Sometimes we lo- we say love is blind, but that's not so because the love that is blind will only end in, uh, up in dis- disillusion disillusionment real love is open-eyed it loves not what it imagines a man to be but what he really is the heart of jesus is big enough to love us truly as we are and then the fourth thing is forgivingly peter is is right up there you know peter we love peter he's going to deny him the disciples are going to run away Yet there is no failure that Jesus would not forgive. We are poor creatures, and there's kind of a fate about things that sometimes we hurt those that we love the most. So for that reason, all real love must be built on forgiveness. Because without forgiveness, it's bound to die. Um, Spurgeon said... Uh, well, no, let me read. F.F. Bruce said, he's about to leave them, but before he goes, he's going to bequeath some spiritual treasures to them. And they are his love, which we just talked about, his joy, which he's going to talk about in John fifteen eleven, when we do I am the vine, and his peace, John fourteen twenty seven. This is what he's leaving them. <clears throat> so if Christian fellowship is marked by such love then it should be recognized as the fellowship of true Christians, of true Christ followers. Um, it should be an unmistakable stamp. Um, and it was because Tertullian, who wrote a hundred years after John wrote, said, commented, said, look how these Christians love one another. And then he goes on to say, Look how ready they are to die for one another. That's that's the real deal. Um, it was interesting because when Jeremy taught about worship, which is was an amazing sermon, he said, you know, back in those days, they all knew they how worthy the gospel was because they all were willing to die for it, and how different that is today. Oh, it is like night and day. But these, 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 they got it. So then in verse 36 and 38, at the end of chapter, this is the, at the end of chapter 13, Peter says to him, well, where are you going? And Jesus said, I'm going, but you can't follow me. And he said, Lord, what? Why can't I follow you? I'm going to lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Barclay records, it is the greatness of Jesus that sees the hero even in the coward. He sees not only what we are, but what he can make us. 
He has the love to see what we can be and the power to make us attain it. So then we go on to this most beautiful passage that you have heard at least 10 times at every funeral that you've ever been to. And it is so beautiful. So let me just read it for you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you myself, that where I am, you would be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let me just say, the disciples are so puzzled. Like I said, that triumphal ending, they thought this was all going to happen. Then Jesus is saying about the corn has to die on the ground. And, oh, this is just not what I had in mind, you know. this Did I sign up for this? I don't think so. And then he says, worst of all, I'm leaving. So you know that their hearts are troubled, okay. Um, so they... Uh, <laughs> It says their fervent messianic hopes had reached an apex during the dizzying excitement of the triumphal entry, only to be dashed when Jesus publicly announced his impending death. I mean, I'm just saying, they were like, what? <laughs> so Jesus has these words of comfort, and I want you to know, because they're words for them, they're also words for us. And no matter where we are in our walk and how crazy our lives might be these apply to us so first of all in verse one he says let not your hearts be troubled um and tenny writes that really says set your heart at ease set your heart at ease and he gives him two imperatives you believe in god believe in god believe also in me these are imperatives that means they're commands okay (laughs) and the way the tense in the word kind of means keep believing not just be believing but keep believing um, we translate it, translate it, let not your heart continue to be agitated. Be putting your trust in God and also be putting your trust in me. Now this trust, this is again that Greek word pisteo, this believing word, okay? The disciples had good reason to be troubled. Jesus in these last hours had hinted of betrayal, denial, and his own death. Christ never minimized the circumstances. He never wore rose-colored glasses. His answer to them was to (coughs) trust, which is John's theme, believe. Myers writes, um, well, I should say John MacArthur writes, and this is my favorite, one of my favorites. Jesus' solution to the perplexity is not a recipe, it's a relationship with him. He's saying, again, like the good shepherd, just come a little closer. Just come a little closer. Um, John Owen, who was a Puritan, wrote, and this is really beautiful, a sense of God's presence in love is sufficient to rebuke all anxiety and fears, not only so, but to give in the midst of them solid consolation and joy. So he's saying, believe, believe. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. Now, the words many rooms is a Greek word. Um, 
it's a, der- a derivation of the word that we u- are going to be using a lot next week, and that's abide. They're dwelling. These are places to stay. These are dwelling places. That's what he calls rooms, okay? And the only other time this der- der- derivative is used is in 14.23. And listen to the verse there, because this really complements what Jesus is saying in the first few verses here. In John 14.23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That home is the same word as many rooms. Okay? Um, And I want you to get that because he's talking about them having a heavenly home here. Um, uh, And Jesus answered him, and I'm, I'm sorry, Christ paints a beautiful picture of heaven, God's home, and our new home. Um, A few years ago, the London newspaper had a contest to determine what's the best definition of home. And the winning entry is, home is the place where you are treated the best and complain the most. (laughs) Robert Frost, one of my favorite poets, said, home is where, is where, is the place when you arrive there, they have to let you in. (laughs) I think that we should think about our home. Um, (coughs) Jesus is interesting here because he says to them, he says, uh, and if I go and prepare a place, I will come again. Now, this is a reference not to his coming after his resurrection, but his coming as the second coming when he comes in the cloud with the horses and the trump. Okay, but it's so interesting because John doesn't talk any about the cosmic, you know, ramifications of this second coming. He talks about a restoration of the fellowship that where I am you will be isn't that beautiful because that's what's important to john um so it was the consummation of the personal fellowship between him and his disciples so where i am you're going to be the entire focus of heaven is being united with jesus heaven is heaven not because it has streets of gold or pearly gates or even angels heaven is heaven because jesus is there So my question to you, is heaven really your home? Um, I told this story a long time ago, and if if you've heard it, but there was this little, um, these two little missionaries that had gone to China, and they spent their whole life um, preaching the gospel in China, and they came back, and they were in their 80s, and their health was broken, and they happened to be going on a steamship, the steam liner that um, uh, Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt was on. So they, they're, they're pulling into the New York Harbor, and there's ticker tape parade. I mean, it's a big deal because Teddy's coming off the ship after his many foreign trucks. You know, I don't know if you know about anything about Teddy, but he was everywhere. So anyway, so, so the wife looks at her husband, and she says, wow. She says, there's nobody even here to welcome us home. And he looks at her and says, that's because we're not really home. That's just so beautiful. Where is our home? Um, And uh, I I feel like sometimes we need to think about that. Hebrews 11 talks a lot about that. Talks about Abraham who lived in tents. Now, let me just say about Abraham. These were really nice tents. (laughs) Abraham was a wealthy man. But he lived in tents. 
And it says in verse 10, For he was looking forward to the city that has his foundations, whose designer and builder is God. <coughs> and then it goes on to say in 14 through 16, For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a better country. For if they had been thinking of the land from which they left, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared for them a city. This is what Jesus is talking about. And this is what is to give the disciples peace through this crazy thing that is about to happen for the next week. They have no idea. But he's saying to them, stick close to me. Stick close to me. Believe in me. Um, so then in chapter, so then we get to chapter, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, we're in four, 14, verse 5 and 6. So Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, let me just say, um, you know, Thomas gets hit by a lot of problems here. You know, he's going to be doubting Thomas in just a few more chapters. However, Thomas probably is the one that's honest enough to say what everyone else is thinking. And aren't you glad that there's a Thomas in every crowd? As an educator, I am glad because I always ask to tell the kids, you know, ask your question. The only bad question is the unasked question. So thankfully, Thomas asked the question and Jesus answers. And he answers in such a beautiful way. Um, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Barclay said, he records, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is a great saying to us, but it would be even greater, greater to a Jew who had heard it for the first time. Because Jesus took the three basic <coughs> conceptions in Jewish religion, and he said that they have found their full realization in him. Um, F.F. Bruce writes that this, these are the themes that John has been so busy trying to tell them, really from the start of the gospel. He united three predominant themes, um, the image of the images of light, which is the truth, and water, which is the life, can be seen in virtually every story, story leading up to the Last Supper. Now these were joined to one that one of the first images that Jesus used in his ministry, and that was that he was the only means by which people could enter into heaven, which is 151, chapter 151. I am the way, the truth, and life. Jesus didn't say that he would show us the way. Jesus said he was the way. He didn't promise to teach us the truth. He said he is the truth. And Jesus didn't offer us the secrets to life. He said he was the life. I am telling you that God, that this thing that we're supposed to believe is a person and his name is Jesus and we should get to know him better. That's really what I'm getting here. So I'm going to back up and I'm going to talk about Jesus as the way and then the truth and then the life. The first is, I am the way. And in context, it's I am the way home. The way is the Greek word hodos, which has two uses. It has a literal meaning and a metaphorical meaning. It was used to speak of the road, but it was also to refer to a method or manner of accomplishing something, the way to do something, right? 
These are closely entwined and cannot be separated. The road leading to a certain place is the method of getting there. Our Lord is the literal road in which a sinner must take if he is to reach heaven. And Jesus has become the method by which he is to be saved. And that came from Wiest. Um, so let me talk, when we talk about the way, the way is not unknown in Jewish writings. Um, the way is a big deal. There's lots of verses, but I'm only give you two. Deuteronomy 5.33, Moses, God said to Moses, you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded that you live and that it may go well with you that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. So the way was important. Isaiah 30, 20 and 21 is a beautiful passage that really describes the Messiah. And it says, And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes will see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to the right or to the left. So that that is so the way is something that they totally understood. What does this mean? Remember, we used the illustration from uh, from uh, experiencing God about when somebody is lost, we got options, you know, and how we as Americans we want our map. You know? <laughs> what? Henry Blackaby. Blackaby, yeah. Oh, okay. And this was a few. This was a while ago. Anyway, um, Barclay talks about this. Uh, this kind of illustration he says suppose a person let's suppose the person we ask for directions we're lost in the country okay so let's suppose the person we ask for directions says come i will take you there in that case that person to us is the way and we cannot miss it that is what jesus does for us he not only gives us advice and direction he also takes us by the hand and he leads us he strengthens us and he guides us personally every day. He doesn't tell us about the way. He is the way. The same word is used in Hebrews 10, 19, and 22. And it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way, that has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil, evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So what's the application of this verse? The, Jesus did all of this so that we could draw near, so that we could be... <coughs> close remember the and i love this way thing you know because he's talking and we're hearing his voice that's all about the shepherd that the sheep know his voice um he has proven his himself time and time and time again and he's telling his disciples just believe i've got this i've got this they just saw lazarus rise from the dead just believe he said what yeah (laughs) total miracle okay so Jesus's teachings are not the way, only Jesus himself. He is the only road leading to God, and he's the only method by which we can arrive. You might think <laughs> that this is going over the disciples' heads, but let me just tell you. What is the New Testament called six times? 
the way. They totally got it. <laughs> so some of us are in that class of slow learners, but they totally got it. So now we're going to talk about I am the truth. Now this is my favorite thing, and I've used this. If you were with me, Ephesians, we talked about truth a little bit, so some of this might be familiar to you. But I love this lesson because I feel like... Um, in our culture today, we need to know, we need to be able to stand up with truth. And truth is a very strong and powerful thing. What is truth? Well, Pilate asked that to Jesus. Just in, It's going to be in a few chats. He's going to say, what is truth? And here, truth is standing right in front of him. Truth is Jesus. Um, truth is a major theme in John. The word um, aletheia is mentioned 109 times in the New Testament, half of which occurred in John's writings. So it was a big deal for him. So let's talk about how Webster defines truth. Webster says that truth is a quality or state of being true and loyal, trustworthy, sincere, genuine, and honest. Um, the, the quality of being in accordance with experience, facts, or reality. That which is true or real that conforms to reality or facts. A verified fact, a true statement, established principle, or a fixed law. So that's what Webster says truth is. But if you think about this, this is very limiting and this is kind of narrow because certainly gravity was a truth before Newton discovered it. Mm -hmm. And it's a fixed law. Truth, according to, Wis to Webster, is kind of limited to what man can verify. It's, it's our intelligence. A better definition is by Kramer, who is a theologian, who says, the truth is the reality lying at the basis of an appearance, the manifested, veritable essence of a matter. Okay? So it's not just what I can verify. It's the truth. It's the basis. Okay? But then, Colin Brown, who's another theologian, had an even better definition. And Colin Brown says, one of the most important uses of truth in John is to convey the idea of reality in contrast to whatever the situation may seem to look like on the surface. Okay? So you see where he's moving with that. Webster says, no, if, you, if I can't prove it, it can't be truth. And, and he's saying... Oh, no, no, it can be truth. You just are not seeing it, okay? So the best definition is when Christ said, I am the truth. Not that I teach the truth, but I am the truth. He gives us the center of reality himself. Now, jump to light speed with me. Back in the day, Copernicus, okay, remember our good father Copernicus, developed his theory of astronomy. Now, before he developed his theory, they had the Ptolemaic thinking, and they would chart all these stars. They would try to do nothing they could get it to figure because the Ptolemaic thinking believed that the Earth was the center of the solar system. And no matter what they did, they couldn't get it all to line up until Copernicus had a V8 and said, Wait a minute. <laughs> Let's just think about this. Maybe it's the sun. And when the sun became the center, then everything made perfect sense, right? 
all the stars could be charted, all the planets came into alignment because they found what the center of the solar system was. Now, let me just say, the same occurs when Christ becomes the center of our reality. Everything sort of lines up. But we have a problem with this. Now, I had three daughters, and my last daughter, she was quite the... Well, she was... She's a little deal. <laughs> Mary Jo knows her. Um, and I kept, because she was the last one and we had waited a little while. We hadn't waited. We just didn't happen that we, so the other ones were older. So she was like the star of the, the world. So I kept saying to her all the time when we were growing, when she was growing up, Chrissy, the world does not revolve around you. I must have said that a million times. Because when she was in fourth grade, she got the, she was in a play. And it was the play of the solar system. And she got the part of the sun. And so she came back and she said, hello. (laughs) They're all, the world is going to revolve around me, mom. (laughs) So I have to tell you that in in America, the problem, we have an identity crisis. The problem is, is that we try, kept trying, keep trying to make us the center of, of the world. We're trying to say everything should revolve around us. And guess what? It does not. It revolves around Christ. And we're the ones that are supposed to be orbiting, not him. And we're, instead, we're supposed to be fitting into his big plan, not trying so desperately to get him to fit into ours. I'm just saying. Does that make perfect sense? Now, let me just tell you there's a problem with this great theory. And the problem is listed, I call it the Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 glitch. Okay? Because here's the deal. If I'm supposed to center around Christ, right, and this is going to be my reality, um, the problem is, is that his thoughts are not my thoughts. <laughs> and it says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, neither his ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Okay, so here I'm trying to get you to understand what reality is, and I'm saying, oh, you're never going to figure it out because you're not smart enough. Okay, so there's our problem. (laughs) But God knew that this was going to be a problem. I actually ordered a poster, but I didn't come in time, so I have to give you. And if you saw this, because I always use this now. So this right here is truth that we can see and verify. This is Webster's truth, okay? And then there's truth that we can't see. And how do we get to this truth right here, this big thing? It's called faith. Because faith is the substance, is the, hello, help me. uh, So far, the evidence of things unseen, okay? So when God tells us things and he says believe, some of it we're going to be able to verify. But there's a whole lot that we're just going to have to trust. And that's his word to the disciples to get them to not be so anxious and to not be agitated because the belief, the truth is the truth. And it will all come out. It will all eventually come out. So the truth that we see is called fact and the truth that we can't see is called faith. Now, let me just say, as a counselor, this is a very big deal to me because we have a lot of people that have 
a lot of wrong thinking about who they are and what they're supposed to be. If Christ is truth, then Christ is reality. And then here's the deal. The more we agree with him on who we are, like I'm a sinner saved by grace, okay? (laughs) What I need in life, the more I agree with him, the closer I am to what is true. And let me just tell you what I call this. This is mental health. (laughs) because you are agreeing with what is true. And let me just tell you, I don't want to oversimplify counseling and all of the many things and the lovely things that therapists do, but I'm just saying sometimes it can be simple. What does Jesus say about us and what do we believe? Um, And the closer I can keep to that, the healthier Mm -hmm. my personality is. So let's, and, and John eight thirty two, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Christ is the truth. He is our standard of measure. Now, if you, back in the day, you don't do this anymore, but when, if you had ordered in a catalog and you order something, and a lot of times you order stuff and it doesn't have a standard of measure. So you get it in the mail and you're like, oh, it's so small <laughs> because you think in the picture it looked this big and and but sometimes they'll be good and they'll have a standard they'll have a coin and that's the standard of measure so you know what you're actually getting okay jesus ladies is your standard of measure that's how you know so everything should be measured by him okay so this is complicated <laughs> I just want to say that this is something I love about Jesus. Jesus radiates a healthy, loving personality. He is the perfect man. He is genuine, transparent, loyal, trustworthy, honest, and sincere, all of which are qualities of being true. He is not, not only is he truth, he actually, and he's going to do this in just like the next chapter, He's going to say, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to give you something really, really exciting, the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit is going to come, since I'm leaving, and he's going to guide you into all truth. So we have two-thirds of God that are helping us (laughs) get to to where we can believe what's really true. Um, And so... So the bottom line is that Christ is the center of the universe. And only as we learn to orbit around him will we find true purpose and meaning in life. He is the key because he is the truth. The truth is not a what, it's a who. Now, my, if you went to Ephesians with me, you know my favorite verse was Ephesians 1.11 in the message. And it said, it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. If you want true purpose, you gotta, you're gonna have to look him up. And you gotta say, okay, so that's I am the truth. Now we have I am the life. Jesus already said in John 3:16 that whoever believes in me can have eternal life. He said in John 10, 10, when he was the good shepherd, I came that they have may they may have life and have it abundantly 
And then in John 11, 25, last week, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who, the one who believes in me will live even though he die. Now, F.B. Myers writes something that I think is so profound that I think we really have missed. And this is it. If then you are wanting life and life more abundantly, you must have Christ. Do not seek it, but him. Not the stream, but the fountain. Not the word, but the speaker. Not the fruit, but the tree. He is the life and the light of men. Let me just say about life, and I mentioned this last week very briefly. God created us to live forever. When he put Adam in the garden, they had lots of trees, all of which were good to eat except that one. But one of them was the tree of life. And it says, and out of the ground, I'm in Genesis 2, 9, out of the ground the Lord made um, to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then after Adam's sin, verse, in chapter 3, verse 22 and 24, and then God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever, what did he do? He made an angel, and they he drove the man out of the garden, and he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So when sin, and God promised that the sin is, is going to bring death, it didn't mean death right that second, it, it, but if they kept eating the, gar, the tree of life, they would have lived forever. This is what God had. Now, here's F.B. Myers. He's my new favorite, at least this week. <laughs> he said, The tree of life was again planted into earth's soil when Jesus became incarnate. That's good. Isn't that great? That's great. Yeah. So he wants us to live forever. Um, so then we get to verse 6. and So I have 10, right? So verse 6 says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, so I have to talk about this for just a minute, and I'm really going to try not to get on my soapbox. <laughs> but let me just say that there is, a, there is a lot of wrong thinking going out there. There's a lot of illogical thinking going on about this whole idea of Jesus <coughs> being the only way to God. And how that is really not understood or appreciated in our day. Um, but I have to tell you, I have to agree with David Gusick, who said, simply put, if Jesus is not the only way to God, then he's not any way to God. Because if there are many roads to God, then Jesus is not one of them. Because he absolutely claimed that he was the only way to God. And, and again, Josh McDowell, a bunch of people have said, either Jesus, if you have, this is Jesus talking here. He said, I am the way. Either he's a liar or he's crazy or he's really the truth and the only way to God. And I, and we, there's this whole movement right now about how we're supposed to be tolerant. Well, let me just tell you that they don't even, there's just not, they're not even like reading the dictionary. Let me tell you what tolerance means in the dictionary. So, 
Tolerance defined is the ability or willingness to tolerate something, in particular the existence of opinions or behaviors that one does not necessarily agree with. So tolerance defined is my attitude or my willingness to tolerate or hang around or whatever, be with somebody that has opinions that differ from mine. Merriam-Webster says it's a sympathy or an indulgence for beliefs or practices differing from conflicting or conflicting with one's own. So tolerance is is having a good attitude about different beliefs. It's not saying that we all believe the same thing. That doesn't make any sense. I'm just saying, okay? So... um, the, wor- the current worldview believes that tolerance is the giving up of beliefs, really that there is no absolutes. And, and, and when we hear this, there's many roads that lead to God, okay? I, I'm, now I'm, 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 a little, I'm looking a little askance at that. Um, C.S. Lewis, who's way smarter than me, um, he said that... Um, As Christians, according to Lewis, we must not abandon the absolute truth of Christianity. Not because we are making it, but because it's making us. (laughs) It is fundamentally fundamentally who we are, and by it we have our being. Let me just say, they they talk about no absolutes. What are they talking about? Okay, so are they going to walk out of a three-story building and, and just walk? I mean, they believe in gravity. Gravity is an absolute. Hello? There's all kinds of absolutes. Why is it that all of a sudden they don't like our absolute? Well, again, (laughs) um, uh, C.S. Lewis says, It's simply that the absolute truths of Christianity are dismissed as radical, naive, and socially unaware. (laughs) That's what he said. And then he said that like 58 years, 50-something years ago. Um, One thing that he said that I really liked in his speech called The Weight of Glory He said, um, Christian theology can fit in science and art and morality and even sub-Christian religions. But the scientific point of view cannot fit in any of these things, not even science itself. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I'm just saying we don't need to apologize for our for being exclusive. We do right. not have to ever because it doesn't make sense. And let me just say every other world religion and if I had more time I would I had quotes for every one of them. Um well let me just say really quickly. So the Buddhists they believe in an eightfold path, okay? And those who practice they call it the true way of enlightenment. Okay, you have to do these eightfold things, and I can read them to you, but it's too lengthy. I don't have time. Um, the Muslims say they believe that Islam is the origin, original, and the primordial faith that was revealed by Muhammad, and Muslims maintain that the previous messages and revelations—that's Christianity, because it's before that—have been partially changed or corrupted over time. See, they have no problem. They have their five pillars. And they, that's how they get to heaven. In Taoism, which is a philosophy in China, and basically they believe that you have to become an 
you have to live in harmony with the Tao. And what is the Tao? Tao really is very much like the Greek's logos, okay? It's the pattern. Um, it says the principle that is the source, the pattern, the substance of everything that exists. Tao also can be translated as the way. There you have that. Taoists view that Tao is the connection that makes all life and movement to nature possible. They believe when a person lives out their life on earth, the Tao returns them to heaven. Okay? So that's the Taoism. Hinduism is a religion that believes in reincarnation based on your karma. In his <coughs> Hinduism, and again, your deeds de- depend on how your next life is. Um, but what they're, this period, this rebirth this life and rebirth kind of thing is a cycle and what they're hoping for is to reach moksha and moksha is a state of enlightenment that can only be achieved through a series of good deeds from one life to the next one moksha once moksha is reached there is no more suffering and ultimate ultimate self-realization becomes the focus during that life and from there with the rebirth cycle broken the final step is ioka and that's heaven. So, let me pose this another way. <laughs> if there was only one God and only all paths eventually lead to him, if I could get to heaven by the five pillars of Islam or living in harmony with the Tao or keeping the eightfold path of Buddha or my good deeds in Hinduism that eventually uh, get me to heaven, if I could do those, any of those things, would God 2,000 years ago sent his only son to die? No. He would not. So ladies, let us, and again, I don't want you to be ugly about this, but let us be firm in our in saying, I believe this. And tolerance is that you can believe what you think and I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to bully you. I'm not going to talk bad about you. I'm not going to talk bad about your religion. That's what tolerance is. It is not saying what you think and what I think really need to be the same. Because that doesn't really make any logical sense if you think about it. So I think we need to beard the, you know, the lion here. You know, I think we need to be a little bit out there. Okay. But I don't want us to get all like feisty about this because the way the world is going to be changed, Jesus just said, is by the love that we have to one another. It's not us getting on a soapbox, even though I want you to know the truth, but I also want you to know that that's, that you can't argue anybody into heaven. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. And how he's going to use that is the way you love each other. That's what he says. So in conclusion, I want to quote Thomas Akempis, who wrote in the 1300s, was quite the man, and I love every one of his quotes, but I'm only going to read one. And he wrote this about this passage. It said, Follow without me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there's no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the sacred way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life, truth, life, blessed, life, uncreated. If thou remain in my way, 
Thou shalt know the truth, and the truth shall make thee free. And thou shalt lay hold of eternal life. Is that beautiful? 